It's always good to start a sermon with something that everybody knows. And so here's something that you all know, is that our election cycle never stops. Uh, Even though uh, most offices are two, four, or six years, people are always running for office. And these days, when they're not running for office, they're fending off uh, some attempt in a primary or perhaps a recall election uh, to basically throw them out of their job. This is the world in which we live. Where we don't expect to find this kind of thing is in the Bible. And yet, in our text this morning in Numbers chapter 16, we run into a story that sounds interestingly familiar, very modern, as we see an attempt to overthrow or to replace the rulers that God has appointed over the people of Israel. And so we want to look at Numbers chapter 16. I know, I just realized I told you to sit down when I should have had you stay standing. So get back up for the reading of God's Word as we honor it, as it's God's Word to us. I want us to listen. We'll start with uh, the first 11 verses of Numbers chapter 16. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now Korah... Uh, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abaram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning, the Lord will show who He is, who is His, excuse me, and who is holy, and will bring Him near to Him. The one whom He chooses, He will bring near to Him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to Himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that He has brought you near Him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Thus ends uh, the reading of this part of our text. When we study God's Word, we need His help. And so we ask for it in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you 
Thank you that you have manifested yourself as a holy God, completely different than us or anything that we have ever experienced. Oh Lord, you have revealed yourself to us as a merciful God, one who, Lord, receives those who don't deserve kindness or gifts of generosity. Lord, You have revealed Yourself as a just God. One that will not let the wicked go unpunished. Lord, we are frail and too often unholy people. And we cannot conceptualize these few characteristics of You or the many others that You have revealed in Your Word. And that's why we need Your help. We need Your Spirit to teach us and change us so that we might know more of You. That we might grow to become more like You. And we pray that Your Spirit will do this work among us and in us even now as we study Your Word. Oh Lord, I pray that Your Spirit will use me to speak Your Word to Your people for their good and Your glory. Even now we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at this text, let's do just a little bit of general introduction. Uh, this is a chapter after we left the children of Israel last week. And uh, when we left them last week, what we saw is the people of Israel refused to go into the land that God had promised, refused to believe that God was bigger than the very tall people who lived in the land He had promised. And because they had refused to accept the promise that God had given them, God delivered through Moses a declaration that none of the adult population of Israel, excepting only Caleb and Joshua, who were faithful and believed in God's promise and His ability, that none of that generation would be able to enter into the land of promise. But instead, that for 40 years, they would have to wander in the wilderness, not in the land flowing with milk and honey, but in an arid and dry place. And there, an entire generation would eventually die. And a new generation would be raised up that would go and receive the promise that God had given. And so that was just a chapter ago. It's no surprise, perhaps, that given that rather stark uh, consequence of their actions, that people in Israel would start looking for an alternative. An alternative to 40 years wandering in the wilderness until a whole generation of people died out. An alternative to the direction of wandering in an arid place. And so where do you want to start? If you're looking for a different direction or another plan, well, you look at the leaders that are leading you. You can see here, even in the text that we've already read, that not only Korah and these other uh, men that are mentioned there, uh, you know, we have Korah and uh, Dathan and Ab 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 
Abraham, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, and On, who we don't hear about at all in the rest of this text, and 250 leaders of Israel. What have they been doing? They've been caucusing. It really is very modern. And you say, now, what do these people have to do with one another? How would they have sort of started this movement to get rid of Aaron and Moses? Well, they lived in the same neighborhood. If you go back to Numbers chapter 2 and chapter 3, you'll see that God not only numbered the people of Israel, but He assigned every tribe to be in a specific place as they traveled through the wilderness. And the place was all uh, compass points around the tabernacle, or the place where God's presence was among His people. And on the south side were all of these people. The, the Korites, as well as the tribe of Reuben, were all on the south side of the tabernacle. And so perhaps as they reeled from the consequences of their faithlessness about entering in the land and heard this dire uh, judgment that a whole generation would fall in the desert, you can imagine them sitting outside their tents on a warm day like today saying, is this the only alternative? And eventually somebody says, well, you know, it's Moses' fault. He's making this stuff up as he goes along. He's shooting from the hip. I think he's winging it. It's amazing how quickly people forget things like the presence of God over the tent of meeting or the miracles that God had done through his prophet Moses. They forget about this and they begin to wonder. And I love it. One of them is a theologian. They say, wait, 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 didn't God tell us we were all holy? Don't you love this? The best Christian controversies come from someone who only knows part of a verse. In Exodus uh, chapter 19, in uh, verse uh, 6, they are absolutely right. This is what it says. And you shall be to me, speaking to all of Israel, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God said, make sure to tell everyone that Israel is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But do you know what the verse just previous to that says? Let me read it for you. It says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So it's interesting that they, they hung on to the, hey, wait a second, we're all holy. And they totally skipped over the part that you need to keep my covenant. That means you need to take me at my word. You need to trust me. You need to put your reliance upon me, which two chapters ago we saw they absolutely refused to do. And two, the idea of being holy means to be set apart. And all of the people were set apart. But that doesn't mean there's no distinction among the holy people. And we're going to get to that more in a second. But you can kind of see how this caucus sort of gained momentum so that they became so bold, they stood up and challenged Moses and Aaron directly. Now, I want to get over to uh, the rest of this crowd and how Moses interacts with them. In verse 12, we continue to read this story, and now Moses is basically saying to the other uh, rebels, Dathan and Abiram, 
that they need to come to the tent of meeting. He, we need to have this out. We need to, we need to have a showdown or, or a conversation or, or whatever it is Moses is thinking. Verse 12, Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come. <laughs> this is getting interesting, isn't it? Kind of sounds like a parent, doesn't it? You know, the kid knows he's in trouble. You know, he's up in his room. And, and mom yells up, hey, you need to come down so we can talk about it. And all you hear back is, no, <laughs> I, I'm not coming. But they add insult to injury here. In verse 13, uh, they say, is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Here is the essence of their complaint. One, they are completely confused about their history. They refer to Egypt as the land that's flowing with milk and honey. They say, Moses, you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey. They seem to have forgot the slavery, the servitude. Again, the bricks without straw. They seem to have forgotten that they didn't have the freedom to make choices. They wouldn't have been allowed to have a caucus They seem to have forgotten all of that. Instead, they've reinterpreted their past to serve their current purposes. And they say, here it is, Moses. You just want to boss us around. You want to be a prince over us. Verse 14, moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men we will not come? What are they saying? You failed in your leadership. I'm telling you, doesn't this sound like a speech of any politician running against an incumbent? You promised in your campaign, Moses, that you would give us fields and homes and that we would have our own spread. And you haven't done it. You stink, right? That's subtext, you know, subtext. He says, now this interesting expression, will you put out the eyes of this, these men? This is a, 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 an idiomatic expression that basically means, are you trying to pull the wool over our eyes? Are you trying to deceive us? We see what it is. Again, completely forgetting that they were on the precipice of the promised land and refused to go in. That they refused to trust the Lord. That Moses led them exactly where he said that he would lead them. And they showed no faith in God and his power to enable them to inherit the promises. And so this is what's going on. It's very helpful for us. Now, I want us to talk about this now as we look at this part of the text. What we see here going on, this is really the first point. We've just been introducing it up to this point. Which doesn't bode well for how long this whole deal is going to last. Uh, here's the deal. We're going to cover the whole chapter, and it covers both pages in my Bible. So just settle in. Relax. The first thing I want us to see is that we see a power play at work here. A power play. Now, perhaps that expression came to me because, like many of you, I have decided that I'm going to be interested in hockey now that the avalanche is in the finals. You know, and suddenly everybody's like, oh, yeah, I love hockey. I need to go buy that jersey after all, right? Uh, The same thing happened in Chicago when the Blackhawks made it to the Stanley Cup. 
but uh, a power play. I'm not talking about when, when the other team gets a penalty and you have an, a, a numerical advantage. I'm talking about that attempt to basically exert your own power, your own will against the established system. This is what's happening. And the power play is really twofold that we see here. First of all, the power play, at least in Korah and his followers, is about the access, priestly access. In other words, they're saying it's not right that just Aaron and his sons are able to do the priestly work. The priestly work were the people who actually brought the sacrifices before God, who actually did what was necessary for the process of, for the forgiveness of sins or for the fellowship offerings and all of the rest. They say it's not fair that they alone get to do this. And so what they're arguing for is priestly access. They want to be able to do what Aaron and his sons do. Now, what's fascinating is that Korah and the Koalites are as close to what Aaron and the priests do as they could possibly be. Now, I, I don't expect everybody to remember this, but here's the way it worked. Only Aaron and his sons could handle the holy things. But whenever the people of Israel got up and moved somewhere new, Aaron and his sons would cover all of the holy things, and then it was people like Korah and his descendants who got to carry them. They got as close to the holy things as anyone but Aaron and his sons. They were this close and it just grinded on them. Why can't we do what they do? Well, they wanted priestly access. Now, we live in a world, even though I haven't been in one of these places yet because none of you have invited me, we live in a world where there are lots of controlled access points in our community, right? So there are multiple bases and operations and places where people work with satellites. That's all they ever tell you. And all of them, yes, you can, all of those people just laughed. Um, and all of them require special identification. And there are guards at the doors or at the gates of their facilities. And you have to have the right credentials in order to get access. So, side note. Take your pastor to work day, you know, that would be fun. And that way I can sort of piggyback on your special access. Well, in the temple, in the tabernacle, the place where God met with his people, he said only certain people have access to the holy and the most holy things. Only the priests have access to come and handle the holy things where the sacrifices are being done. Only the high priest has access to the most holy place where the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement will be made. In other words, access. Korah and his followers are saying that should be for everybody. That should be for everybody. And they use that argument, well, we're all holy. But just because everyone's holy doesn't mean everyone has the same role. This is very, very important. We get confused by this all over the place as a people of God. That being equal in terms of our status as a creation of God, as a new creation of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, means that we should all necessarily have the same role. But God in his providence orders things in such a way that there are unique roles within the people of God. 
And he was very specific. As a matter of fact, it's a lot of what the end of Exodus and the book of Leviticus is about is all the specific roles that God had ordained. And so they're, they're conflating the fact that everyone and the people of Israel is set apart for God's purposes to the fact that a few of the people in Israel have specific roles that God has ordained. If anybody should have known that, it would have been the, the, the Korites because they had a special role. Nobody, just anybody couldn't carry the holy things around. Only they could because God had given them that role. But what they wanted was something they perceived to be better. And we understand that. Who doesn't want to be the person up front? Who doesn't want to be the person in the spotlight? Some of you are very introverted and you're like, I do not want any of that, right? But people want to be the person that everybody else is listening to or looking at, and that's what they want. And so they were having a power play for this priestly access. But secondly, we see that the other guys in this story, particularly uh, Dathan and Abiram here, uh, are, are having a power play for prophetic direction. So if the Korites are mainly concerned, I want to do what Aaron does, these other guys are saying, I want to have your job, Moses. I want to be the prophetic leader of this group of people. Now this is very helpful for us. And you say, why is that? Because again, I know this is hard for us to remember. But when we read a story like this, we are not the first people to read this story. This story is written down so a group of people called the second generation army of the people of God can read this story. And they can learn from this story. And one of the key issues in the book of Numbers is that this second generation will only accomplish the promises that God has given if they follow the plan given to Moses and if they participate and the priestly activity of Aaron and his sons. In other words, the only way, the only path to blessing is to follow the plan that includes the prophetic direction of Moses and the priestly access of Aaron. And what these people want to do is completely turn that on its head. What what they're trying to do in this story is say, we don't need you. We don't need your prophetic direction. We don't need your priestly access. We can do it ourselves. And the second generation is reading this story and saying that is the wrong path to go down. And they know because they know the rest of the story. It gets ugly. We're going to get there. I just want to stop here and make some application. We're not the second generation army of the people of God that are on the, on the verge of taking the land, learning from these lessons. We're, we're people here in 2022 where I hope some of you are people who know and love Jesus Christ, who are part of His church, who are followers of His. But aren't these two points already applicable? Don't we individually and corporately sometimes have our own version of a power play? where we begin to think that we can be in the presence of God, not just through the priestly access of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who we sung about earlier, but because of our own performance, our own attitude, our own accomplishments, 
aren't we tempted over and over again to say, you know what, while I know theoretically I need Jesus, I think I can do it on my own. And in doing so, what we say is, aren't I holy? Aren't I able to accomplish my relationship with God on my own terms, in my own way? If there aren't a few of us who fall into that same error, we certainly live in a culture that says we can get to God however we want to. And we completely reject the idea of a specific priestly access that God has ordained through the high priest Jesus Christ. And aren't we maybe as much or perhaps even more constantly rebelling against the prophetic direction of our great prophet, the one that Moses points to, Jesus Christ, who is our leader, our director, our teacher, Don't we often say, I know Jesus says this, but I know better? I know we would never say that out loud, or we'd be concerned about what happened to Korah and and, uh, the rest of these guys happening to us, but we think it. We think, I know know that Jesus wants me to do this, but I'm going to trust my own direction. Aren't we constantly rebelling in the way that they did? And saying, who are you? Well, what are we doing when we do that? Here the text is very clear that when we rebel in this way, that we are not simply making a little error, but we're rebelling against God himself. Look with me again at verse 11. When Moses talks to the Korites, he says, Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. It is against the Lord. Now, it, they think, they're just saying, I'm just trying to shove Aaron out of the way so that we can do what he does. Or I'm trying to shove you out of the way, Moses, so we can lead the people of God. And what Moses says, no, Aaron's not there by his own volition. I'm not here in my role because I decided to take it. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read his story, he really didn't want the job. But he's there because God put him there. And he says, by rebelling against the plan that God has given, what you're saying is, God, I don't want things the way you want them for me. And he says it again in verse 30. I know we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, But when we get into the judgment part of this text, uh, Moses says, if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, speaking about Dathan and Abiram and all of their of people, and they go down alive into Shoal, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Now, I'm sure those people were thinking, no, Moses, we just despise you. <laughs> and he said, the problem is, at least in this role, I'm not doing this on my own, but I represent God and his will here in this particular situation. And that should be very sobering for us. When we take it lightly that we can add to the work of Jesus Christ to give us priestly access to God, His love and favor, we need to say, am I operating against the Lord? And the answer is yes. Or when I say I'm going to ignore what 
the Word clearly says what Jesus has commanded, because I think I know better, we need to recognize that for what it is, and that's rebellion against the Lord. And I know you're sitting there saying, this is heavy stuff, dude, come on. But you know, part of the reason that I don't repent more is because I forget just how heinous my thoughts, words, and deeds really are. You know, I tend to always, I don't know about you, I tend to think of myself and the things that I do that are so self-willed, the things that I do that I think are going to make God like me more, I tend to give myself the benefit of the doubt. I think, oh, Chris, you're trying your best. Oh, Chris, you, you know, you're pretty close to the mark, and I don't see it for what it is. God, I refuse to accept your authority in my life. I am determined to be in control of myself. I would prefer to have nothing to do with you. And it's only when I get real with what's really going in my heart that I will repent and ask for God to soften my heart and make him more tender to his leadership that I will become more excited and thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for me to give me access to God so that I turn and fall upon him. But I won't do that if I don't understand the severity of my own rebellion. And so I think stories like these are very, very helpful. Secondly, so we see this power play. This is what it's about. Secondly, I want us to see this confusion between positional leadership and a role in which you serve. You see, Korah and Dathan and Abiram are all thinking about leadership as a position that gives you a right to push people around. Now, I think we all struggle with this to some extent. You know, if you are an older sibling, you have totally domineered some younger sibling at some point in your life. You may have been three. And so you're going to give yourself a break instead of realizing the rebel you are, right? When I was in sixth grade, uh, we did a little social studies experiment. And uh, we, we had an island. That was our imaginary social studies project. And on the island, everyone had to have a role, and everyone had to have a job, and everyone had the opportunity to, to build on land and do lots of other things. And that quarter... I happen to be, I think by default or lack of interest, class president of my little sixth grade class. We're talking 20 some odd sixth graders. I was el presidente, right? And so when this project came along, our, our, my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Uh, Maldner, he said, now here's the deal. Whoever the class president is, is going to be president of the island. That made me... El Jefe big time, right? So I'm the president of the island. Now, showing my true nature as a sixth grader, I immediately created a company that would do all of the land grading and create all of the roads on the island and awarded myself that project, which made me not only the president, but the richest person on the island. And whenever people attempted to have an election, I simply changed the process. I had just read Orwell's Animal Farm, so I was a pig in the fullest sense 
of the word. We were all equal, but I was more equal than everyone else. And so there as a sixth grader, what I showed is that I had no understanding of a role as service, but I thought of being the president of my little fake island as a way to have power or position over other people. And this is the problem, that sometimes in the people of God, people see the roles that God has ordained as ways to push people around. And you know that happens even in the church. Now, I haven't been here very long. I don't know how long I can get away with saying that. I'm shooting for five years that, that I'm going to use my newness as an excuse to say stuff that may offend you. Um, so I haven't been here very long, uh, but we have elders here in this church. And I, don't, I really haven't gotten to know the elders well enough to know what whether this is true, and I'm sure it's not, but some people want to be elders in a church so they can tell other people what to do. Just, this is a public service announcement. I have been an elder in the church for over 20 years. I have been standing on places like this telling people what God wants them to do for over 20 years. Nobody listens to you. So, for all, I know you're all like, I'm listening to you. This is great. But I've been, I mean, people always say, if you just make this announcement that we need 100 more volunteers for VBS, they'll run for the sign-up sheet. You know, we've been making that announcement. Me and Pastor Lee and Pastor Rich and every other pastor we've got has been making that announcement, and you have not run to sign up. But yet we think if I'm an elder, I can tell people what to do. This is a volunteer army. There's no telling anybody what to do. But we think that. And we get angry when people don't do what we tell them to do. No. When God gives a role in the people of God, it's so that they might serve. We really see this in a beautiful way in this story. I know I'm, I'm skipping over uh, much of it. But in verse 22, God wants to break out in anger, not only against these rebels, but against the congregation uh, more generally, in verse 21, it says, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, this is God speaking, that I may consume them in a moment. God says, you know what, these rebels, I'm just, we're not going to wait 40 years, we're going to deal with this right now. And what happens? Verse 22, And they, that's Moses and Aaron, fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? Here, this group of rebels is slandering and coming after Moses and Aaron. But when God says, I'm going to wipe them and everyone else out, what do we see? Moses and Aaron understand exactly why they have the roles they do. They fall on their face before God and serve the people by making intercession for them. That's their role, not to push people around, but to plead for God's mercy and grace on their behalf. And oh, how they need it. In the midst of judgment, just so you know what happens, uh, the, peep, the Korites should have known that this was a bad idea that Moses had. He says, look, I want your 250 guys to get censers. I want you to put fire in them. I want you to put incense on them. I want you to come before the tent of meeting, and I want you to wait for the Lord tomorrow. Now, if they had any sense, they would have been like, wait. Wasn't there a story back in Leviticus chapter 10 
about two guys that aren't with us anymore, Nadab and Abihu. And this is what happened. Nadab, and uh, this is Leviticus 10 if you want to look it up later. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, that is made holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. You would think Korah would have said, no, no censers, no fire, no incense. I know what happened. Fire, destruction. But no, he had deluded himself and his followers. And you know what happened in the story? You can read it. Fire came out and consumed them. How about that? What a shock. They did exactly what God had commanded them not to do. They tried to push their way uh, into priestly access, and God's judgment breaks out. What about these other guys? What happens? God says to, to Moses, you need to tell everybody to get away from these guys. And so Moses says, get away from them and their stuff. Don't touch it. Don't be near it. And Moses comes and makes a speech and says, listen, here's the deal. You've you've despised the Lord. And if you die, just like normal people die, you know, like a heart attack after a Big Mac or, you know, maybe, you know, know, old age peacefully in your sleep. He's like, if that's the way you die, then, then God has not sent me to do what he sent me to do. But if God creates something new and the ground opens up, and swallows you alive into Sheol, the place of the dead, then you will know, basically, that God has ordained that I am in my role for His purposes. And you know what happens? The ground opens up and swallows them, and everybody freaks out, which I can imagine. You know, since I've moved here, a friend of mine sent me to a website that tells you all the ways your house can be destroyed. Here in Colorado Springs. Very encouraging website. <laughs> right? You know, it has one color for places your house will burn in a forest fire. It has one for where the ground is so uncompacted that it could give way and your house could slide into the giant chasm that you built it on, on the edge of. And there are other places where it turns out there have been mines dug underneath your house. And that if you buy a house in those places, the chasm underneath the ground could cave in, and you and your house could go right into it. And that's why I'm renting. (laughs) You know, there were only four square blocks that nothing destructive was going to happen to a house, and nothing has come on the market on, in those four blocks, right? And so we get that. We live in an area where we get the ground opening up and swallowing people, and this is what happens, and we can imagine the freak out that happened afterwards. But I want us to see that the next day, did the people learn the lesson? And the answer is no. You would think... 250 people consumed in fire, whole clans eaten by the earth. God, you and I are good, right? You know, 
a little meekness. No. Verse 41. On the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Do you ever think Moses is like, I killed the people of the Lord? The Lord killed the people of the Lord. And I don't think they were of the Lord. But anyway, everybody has their perspective. Just in case you think our social media filled world is crazy, welcome to Numbers chapter 16. Verse 42, and when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, clearly not having learned the lesson from the day before, they turned toward the tent of meeting. Behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. God comes back. His presence comes visibly back. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Again, God says, I don't need 40 years. I'm done with them. What happens? Again, we see that Moses and Aaron think as servants rather than positional leadership. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly and behold the plague had already begun among the people and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 beside those who died in the affair of Korah. I want you to think about this for a second. This whole story is about vast numbers of people rejecting Moses and Aaron. And yet their response is to continue to pray and to make intercession for the people of God. I, I told you, and you can certainly read this story, that when Korah and his followers took out censers. These are like little pans in which you can put hot coals and then you can put incense over the top of it and it releases an aroma. When they did that, they were consumed by fire. Even though they did it to show they could do exactly what Aaron does. And at the end of the story, what does Moses tell Aaron to do? You go get your censer and make sure you do it the right way. He says, take coals from the altar. That's the only place fire was supposed to be put in the censer because it is an extension of the sacrifice that the people of God had made to God. The coals represent an extension of that. He puts those coals in his censer and he puts his incense on it and he runs out into the midst of this people. It says he literally stands between the dead and the living and I'm sorry, but you can't think about another great high priest, can you? Who stood between the dead and the living. A priest that people rejected. And yet, he continued to do what God had called him to do by serving the people. Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verse 3 and following says it this way. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Here this is talking 
prophetically about Jesus Christ. He said, the reality is when Jesus came, no one wanted him. Just like no one wanted Aaron and the priestly access that he gave. But Aaron didn't let that deter him. But instead, he made atonement for the people of God. He stood in the gap between the living and the dead. And Jesus does as well. Notice Isaiah continues, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Here, Isaiah is looking ahead and he is saying that this one that will come, this Jesus will not simply take a little pan of fire and incense and run and stand between the living and the dead, but that he will take upon himself the plague, the plague that sin and rebellion deserves, that Jesus on the cross would there bear the consequence that the rejection of God's role, the rejection of his leadership, the rejection of the access uh, that we might take on ourselves, that all of the judgment that is like ground opening up and fire coming out, Jesus would take on himself on the cross. Why? So that you and I won't receive that judgment. You see, we look at this. i got to be honest. When I read number 16, it's hard for me. When, when a couple of times in this very chapter, he says, separate yourselves from the congregation that I may consume them. I say, oh, that's not right. But isn't it? Who in that congregation deserved to be saved by God? Who in this congregation deserves to be spared by God? The answer is no one. We all deserve the kind of judgment we see in these horrific stories. But Jesus has taken it upon himself that we might have free access to God the Father through his perfect priestly access and sacrifice on the cross. Oh, may the Lord give us grace like the second generation not to reject the provision that he has given and those he has assigned to make atonement for and lead the people of God. He has given us Jesus. Rejoice in him, depend upon him, and follow him as we move forward to the promises that God has made for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for how kind you are to us. Give us grace, Lord. Not to be so self-willed that we desire the position of the one who makes us right with you through our work or our effort. Please help us not to be presumptuous in thinking that we have the wisdom, knowledge, or calling to be the leader of our own life, but instead may we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and follow him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.